Let's jump right in. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been in this series for a while, and today is the last day of it as we transition into the next one. But the thing is, is as we begin to start with this, is we've got to understand that the world we live in today does not like this verse. Because what they would prefer to say is that all Scripture, while inspired by God, has been interpreted by man. And so we apply it in the way that we see fit that best suits our lives. And I'm not just talking from a moral standpoint. I'm also talking from a standpoint of like, you know, what God does and His character and attributes and the promises that He has made. You know, the idea of the things that a born-again believer does does not make sense in light of the world that we have around us. The idea that a person would give a portion of their income away with no strings attached, and by doing so, you will be more prosperous than if you didn't. That makes no sense. Does it? I mean, what a shtick that is. Think about that. Like, listen, all you got to do is give me 10%, but here's my promise to you. That sounds like some snake oil is being sold, doesn't it? And ironically in that is that there are people who are not born again, but if you, if you follow the financial world at all, many of them will tell you, it's like, you know, there's this interesting thing that we have noticed is that as our companies have been more generous, they adopt a tithe per se as a part of their budget, it seems that our sales and our profitability have gone up exponentially. And I remember listening, I was listening to this podcast by this big financial guy, this is a couple years ago, and I'm thinking, oh, what a coincidence that is, you know? Because the principle of tithing is what? We give back what belongs to God, but we are putting our trust in Him, that He meets our needs. Does that mean everything's going to be sunshine and roses along the way? Of course not. Does that mean you get to sit at home and wait for God to mail you a check? No, He's not the federal government. He'll create opportunities, not entitlements. You know, the thing is, guys, is that the things that we do doesn't make sense. The idea that all you have to do to be right with God is believe His Word, that His Son died on the cross, was buried three days later, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The work's been done. All you have to do is put your faith in it and accept that free gift. And what do we try to do? Well, yeah, that part's true, but let me tell you all the other things that you must do. You have to do this. You have to do that. We try to change it. We've made it more complicated with all these rules and regulations and things that we put on. The scriptures are simple. We complicate it. We act like it is something from Ikea on how to put together a a bookshelf. And you're like, who wrote this? You know, we have to understand what God has provided for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every one of them. Every part of this book, this collection of writings from 66 different collections, writings, letters, whatever you want to call them. Forty different authors over a 1,500-year span across three continents. Most people never met one another, and yet it is cohesive. It is true. But we want to take God's Word and we want to change it to fit our narratives. It's good. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God, that's you and I, we may be complete. We need to be complete. The problem we have is we've got an incomplete church. Why is this so crucial? Because the heartbeat of the ministry of God is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, we then are ambassadors for Christ. It says, though God were pleading through us that we implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. This is why we are here. We let all the other things get in the way. But the reason that we are here is the fact that what Jesus has done for you and I, we should implore other people to receive that gift as well. It should be our mission in life. It should be the reason we get out of bed in the morning. The reason we do everything do is to furtherance the gospel because we're so incredibly grateful of what God has done that we can't help but share this love. We can't help but share this passion and look at people through the lens of which God does and be like, please, I'm begging you. I remember there was one time I was teaching a Bible study many years ago, and I had a friend that I grew up with, um, and it's, he wasn't a born-again believer by any means, and for some reason he would come to this Bible study, and, and he would just kind of hang out, and he'd listen, and he didn't really get involved in all of that, but he would be there, and I remember, I don't remember what I was teaching on one night, but I was talking about salvation, and he began to ask questions, and I could see something turned in him. It's like something was happening in that moment. He began to ask questions like this light came on. And so I jumped on. I said, listen, his name was Terry. I said, Terry, are you ready to give your life to Christ? You've been doing it your own way for so long. Are you ready to receive the gift that God has put out there for you? All you got to do is take it. Are you ready? Now is the time. He looked at me. He said, no. Why? Created a God in His own image. You see, God has equipped you and I with everything. Is that my fault that He didn't receive Christ? No. But it's as if God is imploring through me, please be reconciled to God. It broke my heart that night. Broke my heart. He rejected the gospel. But what did I do? My part. I did what I was supposed to do. You see, we have to get back to the basics of understanding what God has done. We know what God has provided. It's all in there. We just have to, it's our job to study it. It's our job to understand it. But what did he do? We've read this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various disease and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics. He healed them. He did what we should be doing. We look at teaching as an art form. Do you realize that you're all equipped to teach? Sure, some may be better than others, but that doesn't mean you're not equipped to do it. According to Moses, he didn't talk real good. He needed some help. He still went. We're all equipped to preach, and we're all equipped to heal. We have a mandate from God and a mission that we should be on. We look at Jesus as our example and be like, well, why don't we do this? And we don't do this for various reasons. Maybe we don't believe it's true. Maybe we think it's somebody else. Maybe we think we're not gifted or anointed or whatever buzzword that the church has told us for years and years and years. And the truth is, is we all have a responsibility. Jesus also in Matthew 20, verse 28, said, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of you guys would be willing to lay down your life for somebody else? Mason would? Okay, good. Any takers? Most of us, and you're talking about we'd be willing to lay down our life for a family member, who would lay down their life for somebody you didn't know? I mean, let's put this in a little easier to swallow pill. Most of us would be willing to help out financially with a family member. How many of you guys would dive right in and you hear about a situation would help out financially with somebody you don't know? And will never know that you did it, and you would get no credit for it. Some would, some wouldn't. I mean, just reality where we are. 
I don't need a show of hands, Mason. I'm just kidding. He did not raise his hand there in case you were wondering. I'm just kidding. Got to keep him on his toes. You know, the thing is, is that there was a compassion about Jesus. We read about the private conversation of Jesus because somebody else captured that information. But it wasn't like when he was sitting there talking to the woman at the well that he came out and said, man, let me tell you about this chick and all the crazy stuff that she had done. He just went about doing his thing. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep... His commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. So, is he in you? Are you in him? If that is true, you should be doing Matthew 4. That's just reality, guys. This is where we are. Because the church today has got too complacent. We do not care about the lost. We talk a big game, but we don't care if we cared, we'd do something about it. When you get passionate about something, it will consume your life. You can't help but talk about it. You ever met some football fanatic? And during football season, that is all they talk. Not me. Don't point at me. I mean, it's not 100% wrong. But that's all they talk about. You know, they can't remember a Bible verse outside of John 3.16 and Jesus wept, but they can tell you about the quarterback that took them to the championship in the 70s. That's not me. I have no idea who played where. I mean, what is wrong with us as a society is that we don't care about what really matters. I remember I was having a conversation with a guy, 30 years old. This guy loved football. Loved football. He was a Kansas Jayhawks fan, so we don't know why he loved football. It made zero sense. And all he talked about was the Orange Bowl year. And if you know anything about football, they had one year, they were good, and then they're back to being Kansas. So, anyway, but he came up to, and I follow football, I enjoy a good football game, and I watched it, and this was, this was a long time ago. But he came up to me, and he was telling me about this game, the Kansas, and I think they were playing LSU or somebody like that, I don't remember who it was, but it was an actual football team versus the Jayhawks, you know, one that was good. And he talked about, like, how they beat him. And, I mean, he's like, man, we just, we really laid the wood on him. He's like, it was scored, you know, X amount of touchdowns and it was this intercept. He's given me all the details about this game. And I don't live in a hole. Like, I tend to know the scores and what's going on and things like that. And I'm like, I do not remember this at all. Like, you know, there was no sports center alert. If the Kansas Jayhawk beats any team that's not a high school team for the blind, it's on the news, right? And so I'm like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know what it was? He played it on his Xbox. It was the game he had played on his Xbox. 30-year-old man. And I'm like, I just looked at him, I'm like, you desperately need a wife. But it was so real to him. And that passion was there over a stupid video game that was not reality. And I just remember standing there thinking, it's like, what if you took that energy and applied it to anything spiritual? What would happen? I remember a few years ago when the game Guitar Hero came out. Do you guys remember that? Do you know there were people that got good at that game? Really good. Play the hardest levels, Mason. <laughs> 
It all goes back to Mason. But they got so good at it. And they could do it, and their fingers are moving all over, and they would win these tournaments, and there were YouTube videos. And, and I'm just sitting there thinking, like, what if you learned to play the actual guitar? What would happen then? What if you took the 100 hours it took you to get good at that and applied it to the guitar? What would you do in life? I remember people bragging about how good they were at Guitar Hero. We're pathetic. But think about that. What if we took some of this energy and we applied it to the things that were spiritual? In Luke verse, chapter 6, verse 39, it says, He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So, what do we do? We look at Jesus as our example. Every single time. To be like him. He is the one who has given us all things. He is the one who lived his life as an example. He is the one that we look to for guidance. Him and him alone. We can look at the apostles, but ultimately, are we to be like the apostles? No. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He didn't say, look at me, I've got it all figured out, I'm perfect, be like me. No, he's like, I'm imitating Christ, you look at my life. So here's the question, can you and I make that same statement? Can we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Is the life that I'm living an imitation of God himself? You see, the disciples knew what to do and how to do it because they spent three years with Jesus every single day, seeing what he did, hearing what he said, acting like he acted. Were they fully equipped? Yeah. He prepared them. Every opportunity he had, he prepared them. He said, listen, you do this. In this example, hey, when you see this, watch out for this. When you have the opportunity, go. What they heard, what they saw, what he taught them, what he gave them in the Holy Spirit, every part of that equipped them for the days ahead. And what were the days ahead? The days were coming when Jesus would ascend. And they were now his hands and feet. And their mission was to go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, I've given you everything and I'm sending a comforter. He's coming from the Father. And when he comes upon you, you'll be equipped with all power from on high to go and do my work and to do my will. A, ma- a teacher is above his disciple until his disciple is now trained. We have to get back to the basics. And let me tell you something. What you believe matters it matters tremendously what you believe impacts how you behave it impacts what you say it impacts how you live but what you believe may not be true let me give you an example you guys ever seen the movie the village anybody remember that it was not highly rated but i loved this movie and so let me paint this scene for you This movie was set in like a colonial time and they were living in this colonial village and out in the woods that if you ventured out there, there was some monster, this creature that would eat you, essentially, would kill you. And so they were afraid to go into the woods. You didn't cross there. You just didn't go. And so everybody out of fear stayed home and they just stayed there and they didn't leave. Well, finally, somebody stepped out, got a little adventurous and decided, okay, we're going to go out there. And the whole movie is in this whole thing, and they, they start to realize that this thing is fake and whatnot. Finally, somebody goes, and they reach this wall, and they jump over this wall, and they land on a highway, and a car pulls up. The entire time, 
the world that they believed to be true was completely fake. There was a group of individuals that created it. It's a great movie. You get an opportunity to see it. See it. I don't care what Rotten Tomatoes says. It's fantastic. But the thing is, is like, that's where we are. We've created this world for us and these beliefs that we have, and we never stop to ask, how did we come to this conclusion? What is it that has made us believe this? How do we know that this is true? The impact your beliefs have on you will dictate what you say. If I'm supposed to be imitating Christ, then what Christ am I imitating? Is it the guy who laid down his life for people? Is it the guy who preached truth to people even when it wasn't well received? Is it the guy who told an adulterous woman to go and sin no more? You know, people don't like to hear that today. Is it the guy that put whips together and chased people out of the temple? Which Jesus am I imitating? Is it the one who the, that is believed to be today that was basically a flower child, that he is just love and loves everybody in the way they are and all of that? Or is it the God of the Bible? We don't get to create our own God. You can. You can do whatever you want that doesn't make it true. And so as we begin to look at this and we, we ask these questions, we have to know this. What is it that God expects from me? In Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, let me show you this. Remember, Jesus is preparing his disciples. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made, so hum- so, uh, made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But I have been raised. I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now what just happened here? Jesus is kind of letting them have it. What's what's going to happen? All of you are going to be made to stumble because of me this night. And then he gives a prophecy that was given. The sheep of the flock will be scattered because the shepherd has been struck. He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So what's he saying? I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm coming back. And Peter said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Those are bold words. I don't care what the others do. Jesus, I've got your back. I'm there for you. The world around me may come crashing down, but I will stand up for you. You don't have to worry, Jesus. I got this. Kind of an arrogant statement. Pretty confident, isn't it? Now, what would we do today? We'd be like, yeah, that's great. That dude's got me. What did Jesus say? Yeah, well, let me tell you what you're about to do. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, what happened? Well, it didn't go as Peter had planned. See, Jesus is preparing him. He laid this out ahead of time. Let me tell you something. This is what you're going to do. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know 
the man. Now stop there for a minute. You've got to understand something. A woman has made an accusation. How much weight does that carry in a first century Jew, Jewish household? Not much, if any at all. But he felt the need to deny it. He said, you were with Jesus. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Another one says that you were there. You were with this Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied with the nose. He's like, I swear on my mother's grave, I don't know that man. And then the last one was finally the straw that broke the camel's back. And he began to curse. And he began to swear. Not something that a person that is a disciple of Christ should be doing. And what does he say? I don't know this man. I'm sure there are a few more expletives in it. Matthew decided to leave those out. And look what happens. Immediately the rooster crowed, 75. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. You see, reality is set in for Peter. The thing that he said he would not do, he did. And Jesus had prepared him for it. And we know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to restore him. How would you feel? I told you this was going to happen, and now it's happened. Right? Have you ever done that with your kids? Hey, don't do that. You're going to break it. What do they do? They do that, and they broke it. What did Jesus do? Peter was sitting there saying, I will never deny you. And he says, yes, you will. He's prepared him. He's equipped him. Did it crush Peter? In the moment, it did. But Jesus restores him. And then look what happens with him. In Acts chapter 2, we know what happens. Verse 14 is where we're going to start. But this is the moment where the Spirit of God comes down upon them. They're praying in tongues. The people are hearing them. They hear the wind. They don't know what's going on. Verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. And said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. And my sons and my daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams on my men servants and my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come, come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now stop. How did he know to take that moment to stand up and make his voice heard? Because he watched Jesus take every opportunity to preach. This man is the man who will ultimately lay down his life for his Lord. Because what he believed is true. He could not deny any of it because he watched them kill Jesus. He watched them bury Jesus. And then he stood there with them for 40 days after that. There was no denying it. And so he was so moved and he gets up. Now watch what he says. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What's he doing? He's laying it out there for him. Let me tell you what you did. This Jesus, the Son of God, attested by the Father Himself, by every sign, wonder, and miracle that He did, you took Him by lawless hands, you killed Him, and what did God do? God raised Him up. 
He's laying it out there. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. What did he do? He laid out scripture for them. Why this just happened. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch daily, David, that he is both dead, buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured this out, which you now see and you now hear. All of this laid out ahead of time. He is boldly preaching. He is at the temple. The men of Jerusalem, the very men that crucified Jesus, are very likely standing in this crowd. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord will call. You see, he just laid it out there. But what prepared him for that? Three years of discipleship. Three years of preparation. Three years of watching Jesus stand up to the Pharisees and their lies and their falsehoods. Of them denying what was right in front of them. Trying to kill Lazarus because Jesus raised him. Trying to bribe the guards because Jesus had been raised trying to do anything, to get that blind man that Jesus healed to admit some other way, something, anything, but this Jesus being Messiah. What prepared Peter for this moment? He was equipped. And what did he fall back to? Not just what he saw and what he heard. He fell back to the scriptures of what he knew. There was no denying it. This is what was prophesied. David himself. But it doesn't stop there. You see, it was three years of discipleship. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, preparing him. Jesus said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Why would you not? Jesus said, I got something for you. Wait there. All coming to this moment. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful, to ask for alms from those who enter the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask for alms. Now what's he doing? He's looking for money. So what happens if we're walking down to the grocery store, there's a dude sitting out there, he's like, hey, you got any loose change? What do we do? We either give him loose change or we don't, right? It's one of the two. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's asking for. What did he not ask for? He didn't ask to be healed. Verse 4, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What did Peter do? He did not give him what he asked for. He gave him what he needed. He knew he had the ability. He had watched Jesus do these very things. Jesus says that greater works will you do because I go to my Father. So what prepared him? Everything that Jesus had promised. It does not say that he was moved by the Holy Spirit. It does not say that God shone this light on this man. It doesn't say any of that. He's walking there. There's a man that needs to be healed. And so what does he do? He commands healing. Now what would we do? If we prayed for him, we'd lay our hands on him and say, Lord, I just ask that you heal this man right now in Jesus' name. Be blessed and have a great day and walked out. What did Peter do? He doubled down. He reached down, grabbed his hand, and pulled him up. That's a bit of confidence, don't you think? Why? Peter was fully persuaded of what God had said being true. And here was that opportunity. He was equipped. He was prepared. He was being like Jesus. Let's go to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now let's stop, and let's analyze this for a moment. What's going on? The first thing you have to understand is that they are in Jerusalem, okay? And Hellenists were Greek Jews. They believed in the Greek, they had different mindsets and stuff like that, but one of the things that would happen is that they believed for a Jewish man to be in the great ascension and the resurrection of the dead, that you had to be buried and die in Jerusalem. So what would happen is he would grab his wife, perhaps his family, as he knew he was dying, head to Jerusalem so that he died there, could be buried there, and what does that leave behind? His widow. What is she going to do? Nothing. She has no way to fend for herself. So what would happen is the Jews believed very much so in taking care of the widows. There were things in the law that pertained to that. But more importantly, they believed in this so greatly that they would help out these widows. There was a vast amount there because all the Jews kept coming home to die. Stay where you're at. Fend for yourself. They'd all come here. That is why this is going on. So because of that, the Hellenists are getting on to them saying, listen, these widows are not getting what they need. It is our responsibility. The disciples recognized that. They said, listen, we really need to be about praying, studying the word, preaching the gospel. We need some help. Nothing wrong with that, right? You may not know this, but it's not on the pastor to do everything, right? We're together. We do this work together. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. Does that mean serving tables is beneath them? No, because what did they look for? Men who were full of the Holy Spirit, had a good reputation and wisdom. It wasn't like, just get anybody to do it. If you have a pulse, you're now qualified. No, they look for specific 
criteria because this mattered. So they went and they chose for them seven, one of which was Philip. And we're going to talk about him a little bit more lately. But what happens? The word of God spread and the number of disciples were multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. How did the word of God spread? They spread because they were having church services and they were inviting unbelievers? What were they doing? Every day. See, we know because of other scripture and stuff like that, signs, wonders, and miracles were taking place every day. The gospel was being preached every single day. And look what it says. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Who were the priests? The Levites. You see, the temple service is now over. They're still doing it, but it has no function. And so now they're preaching to the Levites, which tells you this. They're preaching at the temple because that's where the Levites were. So seven guys... No big deal. We don't hear most of these names again. We do hear Philip. What was Philip's job? Serve the widows. That was his job. Okay? Did it say, Philip, thou shalt go and preach the gospel? Thou shalt lay hands on the sick and see them recover? Thou shalt go and do all of this stuff? No. Serve the tables. That was their only responsibility. What did Philip do? Let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. He's walking along. There's a lot that's taken place between chapter 3 and chapter 8, FYI. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now let's stop and let's look at this. First of all, Ethiopia is not near Israel, not near Jerusalem. It's a bit of a trek to get there. A eunuch was a castrated servant. That way he wasn't worried about chasing the ladies and making babies. He was worried about serving the queen. And so he was in charge. And why did he go to Jerusalem? To worship, which tells us what? You only go to Jerusalem for one reason. In this case, he was a proselyte Jew. He believed in Yahweh. He was there serving and worshiping God at the temple. Now, Philip was instructed by an angel to go here. So, as he sees him sitting in the chariot, reading Isaiah... The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? You know, that's a fair question to ask. He's just get engaging him in conversation. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before a shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this is? Of himself or of some other man? He knows who wrote it, but who on earth is he talking about? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, here's the thing. What training did Philip have? We don't know. What understanding of Scripture did Philip have? We don't know. All we know is he had been discipled by the disciples. That's all we know. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, well, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Remember, to a Jewish mindset, a baptism is now I am one and I am following this teaching. That's what was going on. So, what did Philip say? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he's Messiah. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. 
And now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. You mean the guy that was serving the tables did all of this? And I bet you, if Luke had followed him around, we would hear a whole lot more about what took place in his life. He was equipped. How was he equipped? He was discipled by the disciples. He was full of the Holy Spirit, of faith and power, because he simply believed what the Scripture said were true. There was no special anointing. There was nothing like that. He did it because he believed it. What you believe does not change what is true. What people say is not reality if it's not grounded in truth. There is no your reality and my reality. There's no your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And we, as the body of Christ, have been equipped with everything. Everything we need is in our hands, at the touch of our phones. We can have any answer to any question. We have to get back to the study of Scripture to know how God has prepared us and equipped us. We need to be moved with the same compassion Jesus was, with the same compassion the disciples were. Do you realize that they laid their lives down for what they believed? They laid their lives down because they saw what Jesus did. Do you realize that the apostles were likely with the 70 that went out, that came back like, man, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He's like, yeah, that's great. But here's why you should rejoice. You see, we rejoice because we're a child of the king. We're a child of the king because we've received the free gift of salvation. And with that comes a responsibility and a gifting. You may not be the best speaker, but should that stop you from preaching? No. And you may not think you have the gift of healing, but it doesn't say you need it. It says, believers, he who believes will do this. Greater works will you do because I go to my Father. If Jesus went to his Father, then the rest of it must be true. And the reason we're not doing greater works is because we'll see a dude sitting in a chariot and we'll walk by him. We'll see someone sitting on the side of the street that needs healing and we'll walk by him. And if we pray for him, it'll be, Lord, if it be your will or whatever the case may be. But most of us don't have the guts to reach down and grab him by the hand and stand him up. Because it's about us. It's our ego. We have taken the Spirit of God, the power of God, and the Scriptures that God has given us and turned it into a religion that is dominated by us. It's all about you. It's all about me. Look at our worship songs today. Jesus is mentioned but it's about what he's done for us. It's about us. We worship ourselves. We have lost the fervency and the passion and the desire and the compassion and the heart of God. We've gotten away from our first love. The equipping has taken place. We have been prepared. All of these things are there, but we have to take them. John chapter 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. Anybody in here believe in him? Then what should we be doing? It's not complicated. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, and the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'll pray to the Father that he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
We have no problem believing in salvation, and we have no problem that Jesus is coming back. It's everything in between. We have a responsibility. We can't be his hands and feet and not teach and not preach and not heal and not willingly lay down our lives. We've got to quit making Christianity about us. It's about him. It always has been about him. We have a responsibility. You have to ask the question, can I tell anybody to imitate me as I follow Christ? Is the words I say, the actions I take, truly imitating Jesus? Or am I compromising and making excuses for the way I'm living my life? I think it's time we change that. Because we all have areas. But I think it's time we change that. We get back to the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Because of that, you and I are here today. I think it's time that we start to take that same love and compassion and pour it out into the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us everything. Every tool we need. Every, everything we could ever ask for. You have equipped us with. Lord, I thank you that you're convicting our hearts of the things that we need to repent. Lord, that we won't look like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world, but we will look, sound, be everything that you were on this earth and that you are today. That we be moved with compassion for those who are hurting, for those who are lost, for those who are sick and dying, Lord. That we are moved knowing that you have given us the tools necessary to do what you've called us to do. That you've not left us alone, that you've sent the Spirit and equipped us with all things that we need. I thank you, Lord, that we be moved by you and that we love you for all that you've done for us and continue to do in our lives. We are so grateful that we can put our faith, hope, and trust in you in everything that you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.